0: Shalom, if you can hear me, just wave at me right now. For those of you uh, those online, if you can hear me, uh, I want to welcome gracious and friends who are following us online, and for those of you on-site, welcome home. Now we are currently on, a, on the Supernatural Realm series, focusing on unfolding the supernatural worldview found in scriptures. Now, how many of you thus far, you have enjoyed the series? You are enjoying the series. Yes, you have a lot of questions, but the questions are stirring you to understand the Scriptures even more. How many of you? If you are, just wave at me, all right? Thank you. And for those of you online, if you enjoy the series, type on the chat right now. Just type, love this series, all right? Just type it there. Love this series. Now, at the same time, I want to ask all of you to be patient with us as we unfold various biblical concepts over the coming weeks. Now, many have asked questions, very good ones, regarding and relating the topics that we will be touching on in the coming weeks, in the coming sermons. So bear with us as we unpack Important concepts systematically for all of you. So so be patient with us. We will come to some of the questions you may have because there are a chain of uh, concepts that we must slowly touch on so that you can understand them uh, as we unfold them. Okay? So let me begin by recapping some pertinent points that we had learned over the last two weeks. Now, if you remember, we learned that Yahweh created both the divine and and the human families to rule and reign with Him. And we saw from scriptures that Yahweh created His families in His own image. God created His families in His own image. And let me do an immediate application right now to this truth that you learned uh, the last two weeks. Uh, An application is this, that if you have heard the latest news on a 16-year-old Christian, who plan to attack two mosques in Singapore. How many have heard this? You have heard this news recently? Wave at me right now. Now, This is a very shocking news for many of us, but let me apply it in this case here right now. Now, all human beings are created in God's image. All. That's what Pastor Julie shared last week. All of us are created in God's image. We are fellow images. And to use violence against a fellow human imager is not biblical, it's not scriptural at all, and it's against God's intent for every one of us. And as God's people, we do not condone and we will not propagate violence against any human being, regardless of religion or race. Can somebody say amen? Because they are our fellow images. And with this application from last week's sermon, let me now move on to the fourth installment today, focusing on the rebellion in Eden. Now some scholars would call, call this encounter or this episode the first divine rebellion that led to the fall of Adam and Eve. Now let's examine this account right now in Genesis chapter 3. Now, following me right now to Genesis 3, and a big idea for today is this, God foresaw the fall and was ready with a plan to rectify it. God foresaw the fall and was ready with a plan to rectify it. Reading from Genesis 3, verses 1 to 7, it says this, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field, that the Lord God had made. And He said to the woman, that means this, the serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, when we read this infamous account in Scripture, we need to ask who... And what is this serpent? Who and what is this serpent? Was this an animal that could speak? Or was it something else? Have you ever occurred to you when you read Genesis chapter 3, why, why is it that this serpent that could speak? Is, this something, is it a fairy tale? Is it something that's so strange? Why, why could a serpent speak? And, and let me right now dive deeper into this. Now, the original word, Hebrew word for the, for the word serpent is actually the word Nahash. Nahash. Now, in the ancient Near Eastern worldview, it was not strange to have divine beings that appeared in a serpentine form to dispense divine revelation and knowledge. It wasn't surprising at all. And in this case, in the case of the Nahash, it was not viewed by ancient readers at that time of Revelation. They did not view it as an a, a animal, a snake that could speak alone, no. It was also not because a spirit possessed a snake and enabling it to speak. And that's not true as well. Now, the Nahash was a divine being in the ancient worldview. The Nahash, the serpent, was actually an ancient divine being. And let me unpack that further. Now, you even notice in Genesis 3, Eve. Eve, Adam and Eve, the Eve, was not frightened at all by the Nahash. She was comfortable with this divine being and engaged him in a friendly conversation. And that's why in Genesis 3, you never read the account that that this Eve was shocked. Oh, who are you? Why are you speaking to me? How can a snake speak? You don't read that. No, at all. Why? Because in their worldview, it was a divine being. Eve was not guarded against the Nahash at all because she knew this divine being and she was comfortable with him. The Nahash could very well be a member of God's divine council whom Eve trusted. So, who exactly is this Nahash that Eve trusted? and yet it rebelled against God. Who is this divine rebel who started the first divine rebellion in Genesis 3? Now, scholars believe that there are two passages in the Scriptures that describe the same divine rebel who went against Yahweh's purpose and was eventually cast out of heaven and down to the underworld. And these two passages are found in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. And let me give you the context right now of these two passages, and we will look at it later. But let me give you the context right now for Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Isaiah 14 is written against the human king of Babylon. And Ezekiel 28 is written against the prince of Tyre, another nation. Although the two passages are written against human kings, the imagery of pride and rebellion is taken from the primeval fall of a divine rebel. And let's examine right now these two passages to find out more about this divine rebel and his relationship with the Nahash. Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14, reading from verse 12. Isaiah 14, 12 says this, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, sun of dawn! How you are cut down to the earth, you who laid the nations low! You sit in your heart, I will ascend into heaven, above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high, and I will sit on the mount of assembly, Similar language, remember? If you heard this before, two weeks ago I touched on this. I will sit on the mouth of assembly in, in the far reaches of the north. Now, if you recall, we learned that the context of a star, when you hear the word star in Old Testament, it refers to a divine being. And so when we see the term such as a day star, the morning star, or the stars of God, immediately we must connect to divine beings in Yahweh's council, and I touched on that two weeks ago. And we touched on this, the concept of the sons of God, and if you are new with us, do go back to the divine family part one to understand this vital component from our YouTube, all right? So if you don't understand it, please go back two weeks ago, we actually touched on this, and do revise it again, revisit the video again, and understand the concept of the sons of God. Let me carry on right now in verse 14. It says here, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to shore, to the far reaches of the pit. Now, these four verses in Isaiah describe a divine rebel cast down from heaven because of his ambition to be above the sons of God, the stars of God, and to be like Yahweh, the Most High. Now, this divine rebel wanted to be like Yahweh because he knew, he knew that he could never, never have the status and power as the Creator Yahweh. No way, because he was a creature, a creator being. And he knew he could never be Yahweh. So he wanted to be like Yahweh. And let's see right now the next passage in Ezekiel 28, because Ezekiel 28 gives us more information on this divine rebel. Ezekiel 28 verse 12 says this, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection. That means a sign, a symbolism of perfection. Full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden. You were in Eden. Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, and you were an anointed guardian cherub. I place you. You were on the high mountain of God, in the midst of the sto- in the midst of the stones of fire. You walk. That means this creature was walking. In, in the heavenly realms, with God in, 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 a, in God's presence, among, among other divine beings. Look at verse 15. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of, of your splendor. And I cast you to the ground. I expose you before kings to feast their eyes on you. Now, these four verses again give us more information on this divine rebel. And let me do a a quick summary right now. Verse 13 tells us that this divine rebel was in Eden. Now, the very place where Eve had a conversation with the Nahash. Remember Genesis 3? It It was Eden. And this divine being was there too. Verse 14. Verse 14 tells us that he was also a guardian chariot. A chariot refers to a divine being whose primary responsibility was to guard the throne room, the throne of God, the throne of Yahweh. So we can see from verses 13, 14 that this divine rebel was in Yahweh's presence and also in Eden, given his important role as a throne guardian. Now, with Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 in this background, the serpent and the hush in Genesis 3 was a throne guardian who rebelled against Yahweh. And because of this rebellion against Yahweh, the fallen throne guardian was eventually cast out of heaven. And the question is this, when he was cast out of heaven, where did God send him to? Where did he go? After the rebellion, God sent, uh, sent judgment and punishment to him. So, where did God send him? In Isaiah 14:15, it says that he was cast down to Shoh. S-H-E-O-L, Show, which is the underworld. Show contains the meaning of underworld. In our English Bible, Ezekiel 28:17 says that he was cast down to the ground. Now, however, the Hebrew word for the word grounded in Ezekiel 28, 17, is the word Eretz. Another Hebrew word called Eretz, which also carries the same meaning of the underworld, right below the, below the earth, right below. It's called the, the ground or the Eretz itself. So this divine rebel who wanted to be like the most high was cast down to the most low, to the underworld, the lowest part of the universe, which is where God sent him to. Sure, the underworld. Therefore, with this information from Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, we can draw some facts, some interesting facts, regarding this divine rebel. Number one is that this divine rebel was in Eden. Number two, he was Yahweh's throne guardian. He guarded the throne of God. Number three, he had the ambition to take Yahweh's place in the divine council. And number four, he was cast out from heaven to the underworld. And with this background information of this divine rebel, the Nahash, the question is this. Yes, this Nahash had ambition, but why did he want to deceive Eve? Why? Why? Why did he deceive Eve? Yes, we know that he had an impossible ambition for Yahweh's position. But why target Adam and Eve? What was Adam and Eve's relationship with this rebel's ungodly ambition? And let me explain this right now from Psalms chapter 8. Because Psalms 8.4 and 6 shows us a possible reason. It says in Psalms 8.4, what is man what is humanity? What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, lower than all the Elohim, lower than all the sons of God and crowned him with glory and honor. But you have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you have put him things, you have put all things under his feet. Now, King David wrote that Yahweh had in mind for redeem human beings, redeem sons of God, redeem children of God, to play a hero in His rule and reign over the universe, and most likely the Nahash realized that Yahweh's glorious plan for the human images, for Adam and Eve, and, and and with God's plan for them, that would relegate him, relegate the Nahash to a lower status, and this could be one of the reasons that led him to devise his wicked plan for humanity's downfall because he could not accept that. He didn't want, the Nahash wanted to remove Adam and Eve from God's presence. He didn't want God to elevate humanity above him. So with that, the Nahash wanted humanity out of Yahweh's divine purpose to rule and reign with him. But thankfully, we thank God. Thankfully, Yahweh was not caught off guard by the Nahash rebellion. Yahweh was ready. He was ready with a divine salvation plan to ensure that his purpose for the human images will continue. And let's see right now Yahweh's salvation plan for humanity. And reading from Genesis 3.14 now. Let me jump back to Genesis 3, verse 14. It says this, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and thus you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, this verse is not talking about the serpent eating eating dust as its diet. It's not about that, all right? We know that snakes or serpents do not eat dust as part of their diet. We know that. Today, those of you who study science and the animal kingdom, you know that snakes don't eat dust as their diet. The main point here is that the Nahash was punished and sent to the lowest part of the universe, to the underworld where even the animals were even higher than him on earth. Because he was sent to the underworld, the animals were above him. That's the meaning of this verse. So Yahweh casts him to the realm of the dead, which is below the realm of the living. But let's see right now, Yahweh's solution for the fall of humanity in verse 15. He says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. You shall bruise, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, this was a prophecy foretelling the coming of the human Messiah who would give a crushing blow to the serpent's scheme. Of course, the prophecy also foretold the wounding of the human Messiah as well. So from Yahweh's swift and fast response, we can see that God was fully prepared for the fall of man as instigated by the Nahash. Not only that, Yahweh was also fully prepared to send the Messiah to remedy the consequence. In the later part of Genesis 3, Adam and Eve were evicted from Eden because they disobeyed Yahweh's instruction. And that paved the way for the arrival of the last Adam, the perfect man who was the incarnated Yahweh, Jesus Christ, who came eventually. And we will spend a lot more time next week examining the works of Jesus Christ in reversing the consequences caused by the Nahash. And I will leave this exciting topic to next week's sermon, all right? So return tomorrow, next week, and you will then hear how Christ reversed the consequences of the Nahash. But for the remaining time today, let me address some spiritual implications from what we have learned thus far. And spiritual implication number one is this. The fall of other divine beings. The fall of other divine beings. Now, we have examined the first divine rebellion through the serpent in Genesis 3. The question that, that follows after this rebellion will be among all of us would be this. Many of us will be asking, you say, okay, there's this divine being called Nahash who rebelled against God. So were there other divine beings who followed the serpent in rebelling against Yahweh? Were there other divine beings? And, And of course, we must come back to Scripture again. From the scriptural point of view in Genesis 3, only the Nahash was addressed and punished. If you look strictly to scriptures, especially in Genesis 3, he was the only one mentioned in scripture. And we are not told of other divine beings involved in the first divine rebellion against Yahweh in Genesis 3. However, some believers would then reference, they would reference Revelation chapter 12, verse 3 to 5, and ask about the common belief that one third of the angels fell with the devil. Now, how many of you have heard this before about this one third angels that fell with the devil? How many of you? Some of us have heard this before, right? And, 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 and let me address it right now because many of us are taught by our traditions that this passage. In Revelation 12, it's about angels falling away with the devil. And let's see this passage right now. Revelation 12. Revelation 12, 3-5 says this, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Now, very interesting verse. Look at verse 5 now. And then this woman, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And when you read statements like this, this child that rules all the nations with raw iron, and, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne, when you read verses like this, who, who immediately comes to your mind? Our Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? Immediately, it, it comes to your mind, it's our Lord Jesus Christ. So let me unpack right now the context of this passage right now in Revelation Revelation 12. Revelations 12 is often misunderstood to justify the fall of the wanted of angels from heaven. And I must, I must confess that I was one of the culprits who once propagated that. I used to teach that myself, okay? However, the context for Revelations 12 is the birth of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Revelations 12 is talking about the birth of Jesus Christ, the first arrival of Jesus Christ. And the woman in the passage refers to Israel. Israel was a nation that gave birth to Jesus. So the passage describes the woman about to give birth to the Messiah and with the dragon waiting, waiting to destroy this child. But God intervened and protected the child. And I want to submit to all of you that the passage is not about fallen angels who rebelled against God. But it is about the birth of the Messiah where God intervened to ensure His safe arrival and His ascension to heaven. Revelation 12 is not related with the first divine rebellion that took place in Genesis 3, It is about the birth narrative and not about the first divine rebellion narrative. All right, so we must understand. Back to the context again. So we cannot combine these two separate events in Genesis 3 and Revelations 12, which was thousands of years apart, and say that the Nahash took one-third of the angels with him in the first divine rebellion. We cannot do that. That's not the right way of doing biblical interpretation. Now, coming back to the context of Revelation 12, what then is this a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth? What is this? What does this verse really mean? And all we can say for now as you look at this, this particular text here is that we don't know. We don't know what exactly this is about because Apostle John did not elaborate its meaning. Apostle John didn't say that, oh, this is what happened to a third of angels. They all follow the devil. No, he didn't say that. He was referring and describing an event that took place at the birth of Jesus. But definitely, if we were to understand the context, it's not about the fall of other spiritual beings with the Nahash in Genesis 3 because they are two separate and different events thousands of years apart. But So since this passage is not about the falling away of the one-third of the angels from heaven, then let's not propagate. Let's stop propagating the belief that the devil took one-third of Yahweh's angels with him in his rebellion. Let's not give the devil too much credit when the Scriptures do not support it. Can somebody say amen? Can someone say amen? So we can see that it's not the right interpretive approach to derive a theological belief based on one verse, especially without understanding its context. And we must avoid coming up with a theological belief based solely on one verse or one statement in the Scriptures. Now, of course, some of you may ask, does it mean that God cannot speak to me from any Bible verse? Is it true, Pastor, that, that then, then God cannot speak to me since we must understand everything in, in the biblical context? No, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that. God can and will speak to you from His Word when you read the Scriptures. And sometimes during your personal devotion time, the Holy Spirit can speak to you from a particular verse without you fully understanding the context. Now, how many of you have experienced that before? You don't fully understand context, but it just speaks to you. How many of you? Yes, I see some hands here. Very good. And for me as well. And sometimes when I do my devotion, God will speak to me from a verse and, and, I, and, I, and I wasn't doing any like deep Bible study. Just God used that phrase to speak to me. And, and that's happened to me. So yes, it can happen because God can do anything to speak to you. Anything at all. Using a verse, using an event, using nature, using flowers, using anything to speak directly to you. But church, remember we cannot use my personal encounter with God and make it into a theology for everyone. That is not correct. We cannot use our personal encounter and say that this is a theology for all. For example, some of you are very smart and you, you pray to God and say, God, this coming exam, let me get all straight A's. All straight A's, oh God. And God, and it really happened, you get all straight A's. And then after your next prayer will be, God, after straight A's, I want to get a president scholarship. The most prestigious one, president scholarship. And you prayed. And God gave you the president scholarship. And but you but they were, they, that is your unique encounter with God. God spoke to you and said, God, God will do it for you. But you can go around telling everybody, all two, three hundred of us, say, all of you can get straight A ones, All of you will be president scholars. You can't. You cannot do that. That's not right. Because it's God's personal word to you. It's a kairos word for you. God used something to speak to you. It's meant for you at that moment and only for your situation. But that kairos word for you cannot become a general theology for all. It cannot be. And that's how we can avoid false teachings among us. By not teaching personal encounters as general theology for all. All we can say that God is faithful, God knows our situation, and God will be there for you. And not say that, hey, I want you to know, all of you get straight A1s. Just pray. No need to study, just pray. And the next 200 of you, all of you will become present scholars. Because it happened to me. No, you can't. It just doesn't work that way. So coming back to Genesis 3 and Revelation 12, it does not mean that, that there were no other re, divine rebalance in Scriptures. There were. There were other divine rebalance in heaven, and at least two other divine rebalance recorded for us in the Scriptures, which we will examine in the coming weeks, okay? So you must come back again, and we will then teach you more about other divine rebalance. And I'll reserve these exciting episodes for future sermons in the series. And with this, let me move on right now to a second spiritual implication, The second spiritual implication is this. Freedom of choice as Yahweh's images. Freedom of choice as Yahweh's images. Now from Genesis 3, we, we can see that both the divine and the human families, they rebelled against Yahweh. We saw that. The question that some of us may have is this. Why did God allow His divine and human families... The divine human images to rebel against him. Why? Why did God allow that? And to answer this question, we need to revisit last week's concept of the image of God that Pastor Joey taught us. If you recall, the image of God refers to a special status given to divine. And human families in representing Yahweh, in representing God to rule and reign. It's a special status imputed on you because you are an imager. God gave you that status to represent Him to rule and reign. And for both the divine and human images to fully represent Yahweh, they must be able to exercise the freedom of choice. Say it with me right now, freedom of choice. Now say with me right now, freedom of choice. For those of you online, can type right now, freedom of choice. Without the ability to make choices, the divine and human images will become mechanical robots unable to fully represent Yahweh. True images of Yahweh must be given the freedom of choice when representing God on earth. But the moment, just the moment free will is given to Yahweh's creator beings, there is always a possibility that they will disobey and rebel against God. They will. The moment you give them a freedom a choice, an ability to make a choice, the ability to choose, some of them, some of us can make a choice to rebel against God, and that comes with the freedom of choice. But of course, some of us may be asking and thinking right now, but Pastor, why? Uh, why would Yahweh allow rebellion and disobedience to take place? Why would God even allow it? Why, why God even permit it in the first place? And you see, the motivation behind this question is that we are concerned for God. We are concerned of the risk of rebellion that threatens Yahweh's authority, isn't it? We're thinking like, why did God even allow rebellion? Why why should God permit rebellion to to threaten who He is, the King and Lord of all? Why, Why would God allow such threats to even exist? But church, let me submit to you today, the fact is that Yahweh is never... He's never threatened in the first place. Yahweh, our God, is never threatened at all. No creator spiritual or human beings can ever threaten Yahweh. Can somebody say amen? But one thing for sure, Yahweh can be grieved. Yahweh can be grieved. We will cause Him grief and sadness when we disobey Him. And yet Yahweh took the risk of grief and disappointment to allow freedom of choice for divine and human images. And with the freedom to exercise one's will, there is, all, there is also the blessing of obedience and the curse of disobedience to Yahweh. And we must understand that every decision point will bring either a blessing or a curse. And for the Nahash, his rebellion caused him to be cast out of heaven and sent into the underworld. That was a a curse to him. And for the human images, Adam and Eve, they were driven out of Eden and experienced death and separation from Yahweh. So there, there are consequences, there are blessings. And church, as believers of Christ today, it's a reminder to all of us that we must follow Yahweh's voice and make godly choices that align, choices that are aligned to God's word because blessings follow obedience and curses follow disobedience to Yahweh. And the effects of blessings and negative consequences can be seen and experienced in your personal life, in, in, in your family, in your school, in your relationship with your friends, in everything that you do, even as you, if you take on careers, you realize that every decision you do have consequences, negative ones or blessings that will bless your life in your career, in your studies, in your relationship with people around you. And as we image God, as we represent Yahweh as students, As some of you here, as students, as as young working adults here, as you represent God as His images, bring blessing. Bring blessing to the arenas that God has placed you there for. Determine today what you want to bring into those areas of your life. Blessing or curses. Determine for yourself right now. In In your school, in your class, in your CCA, in the things that you're involved with, involved in. What do you want to bring there? Blessing or curses you choose. And I urge you to bring blessing so you can be a godly imager who brings God's presence and life in everything that you touch. Can someone say amen? Can someone say amen? And with that, let me conclude by summarizing the main teaching points for today. And number one is that Nahash led the first divine rebellion in Eden. We saw that story in Genesis 3. And because of that, Yahweh casts the Nahash into the underworld. And number three, Adam and Eve lost their places in Eden and and they were separated from God. They were then separated from God. And number four, Yahweh would send the human Messiah to reverse the consequences of their rebellion. And we will visit that next week. So with this, let me close in prayer.